This reading is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Stillwater's Revival Books is online at www.puritandownloads.com. The message, A Day to be Remembered. This was a sermon that was delivered by Charles Spurgeon at the Metropolitan Tabernacle in Newington, England, on Lord's Day evening, October 1st. 1882. The scripture, Luke 19.9. Jesus said to him, This day is salvation come to this house. Observe, dear friends, that our Lord spoke this sentence to Zacchaeus. Some of us may have fancied that he said it to the objecting people, but he did not. They may have heard it, and their objection may have been answered by it. But the main purpose of our blessed Lord in uttering those words was not to answer objectors, but to comfort one who might feel dispirited by their murmuring remark. Therefore, Jesus said to him, This day is salvation. Come to this house. It's always better to comfort believers than to answer cavillers. The cavillers scarcely deserve a reply, for they're pretty sure to find fault again. It's according to their nature to do so. But as for the poor, distressed people of God who gladly receive the truth and yet have to endure unkind observations, let these be cheered. For has not the Lord himself said, Comfort ye, comfort ye my people? Now what could give Zacchaeus greater consolation than for the Lord Jesus Christ to bear witness to the fact of his salvation? Jesus said to him, This day, is salvation. Come to this house. I fancy that I can hear some of you say we should count it the happiest day in our lives if the Lord Jesus would come and tell us that salvation had come to us. But, beloved, you cannot have him come in the flesh to say that to you, for he's gone away to carry on his service elsewhere. Among other things, he's gone to prepare a place for you who believe in him. But, his spirit is equally divine, and he's with us always. And you may have the Spirit of God bearing witness with your spirit that you are the children of God. Nay, I trust that you not only believe that you may have this witness, but that you actually have had it. You've had that secret, silent, inward evidence which no man understands but the one who receives it. And you know in your own soul that you have passed from death to life because the Holy Spirit has sealed that truth upon your heart. Therefore, dear, dear friend, be joyful. Yea, be exceeding glad. If anything can make a man leap for joy, it ought to be the assurance of his eternal safety. If salvation has come to your heart, you ought to be as happy as an angel. And I think that there are some reasons why you should be even happier, for an angel cannot know by personal experience, the bliss of having his sins forgiven. You, who have realized this wondrous blessing, ought to cause the wilderness and the solitary place to resound with the melody of your thanksgiving and with the music of your grateful delight. You should make even the desert to rejoice and blossom as the rose. Oh, what bliss it is to be assured by the Holy Spirit himself that you have passed from death to life, and that salvation has indeed come to you. 
May many of you enjoy that bliss from this very hour. Now, let's come directly to the text. This day, says Christ, is salvation come to this house. You'll not forget the outline of the sermon, for it's very simple. And one that can be easily remembered. First, this day, what? Secondly, this day, why? And thirdly, this day, why not? First, this day, what? What about this day? Christ says, this day is salvation come to this house. He seemed to cut that day out of all the rest of time and to say concerning it, this day, this particular day, on this very day, is salvation come to you. Then let this day be a holy day. Let it be a holiday. Let it be remembered for many a year. Yea, let it be recollected throughout all time and throughout eternity too, this day. You know that there are some people who observe certain days which God has not ordained to be kept in any special manner. The Galatians did so, and, and so Paul wrote to them, I'm afraid of you, lest I have bestowed upon you labor in vain. We do not judge those who act in a similar way today, but still, like Paul, we're afraid of them. That's to say, we fear they're mistaken in what they do. But there are some days which God commanded to be observed. First was the day when the work of creation was finished, concerning which we read, on the seventh day God ended his work, which he had made. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because that in it he had rested from all his work which God created and made. The completion of the creation, when God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good, deserves to be remembered. And does not the new creation also deserve to be remembered? When the Lord creates in a man a new heart and a right spirit, shall we not say one to another, This day, this joyful day, this divine day, this new creation day, is a day to be observed very specially. It's clear from the practice of the apostles that the Lord intends us to observe the first day of the week because that was the day of Christ's resurrection from the dead the day of the completion of our redemption. And well may we commemorate the complete redemption even more than the complete creation. Shall not each saved man specially celebrate the day when he was redeemed from sin? Shall he not count it worthy to be observed with holy rites of preaching, praise and prayer, and to be had in grateful remembrance as long as he lives? Each believer can say of the Lord's day, this day, the Lord redeem my soul out of the hand of the enemy, out of the land of the enemy, and set me free forever. God has appointed but one day to be kept sacred above all others. That's the Lord's day. Your Christmas days and your Good Fridays and all such seasons are only observed by man's ordinance. But the Lord's day is ordained of God. That's to be observed as the emblem of rest. Now, Surely when a man comes into rest, and we which have believed do enter into rest, then that day should be specially observed by him. It should become a, a Sabbath unto the Lord throughout the man's whole life, that happy day in which salvation came to him. 
Let then this day stand as a special day in your calendar. Mark it with a red line, if you like, or, or mark it with a golden seal. Let it be had in remembrance evermore. Our Lord said to Zacchaeus, This day is salvation come to this house. From these words I learned that salvation is a speedy blessing. It can come to a house in a day. Nay, more, it can take possession of a man's heart in a day. Nay, to go further, this great work can be accomplished in a single moment. I suppose that the new birth is actually a thing which requires no appreciable period of time. A flash, and it's done. If a man be dead, and he's restored to life, there may be, in certain respects, a gradual operation upon that man. And some time may elapse before he's able to walk, but there must be a, a certain instant in which there is life in the man, whereas a moment before there was no life in him. The actual quickening must be a thing that is instantaneous, so that the working of salvation in a man not only be performed this day or this hour or this quarter of an hour, but this minute, even this second. And between light and darkness, there's usually a period of twilight, and so there is in the soul. But even in twilight, there is a measure of light. And there must be a moment when the first real beam of light begins to smite the ebonite darkness. So there must be a moment when grace first enters the soul. And the man who before was graceless becomes gracious. I think this is a good point to be remembered. You poor, deluded souls who hope to save yourselves by your own works? You'll have to keep on throughout your whole lives at that useless occupation. And even when you lie dying, you may be sure that you're not saved if you've been trusting to your own works. But he that believes in Christ Jesus is saved there and then. And he can joyfully sing, Tis done. The great transaction's done. I am my Lord's. And he is mine. This is a blessed fact. That salvation can come to a soul this very hour. Nay, as I have already reminded you, uh, long ere the hand of that clock shall have reached the end of this hour, salvation may have entered into many hearts that are in this place, as truly as it entered into the house of Zacchaeus. Next, I learn from our text that salvation is a discernible blessing. This day is salvation come to this house. Christ could see it, so that it was something which could be seen. Aye, and salvation was also seen by Zacchaeus himself. And the fruits of it were soon seen by those who were in the house with him. Do not suppose that a man can be saved and yet know nothing about the great change that's been wrought in him. It's not every man who can say for certain that he is saved. For faith is a thing of growth, and assurance may not come at once. But when a man is really and completely saved, he has but to use the proper means, and he may become absolutely certain of it. God the Holy Spirit is willing and waiting to give the full assurance of faith and of understanding to those who seek it at his hands. Next, salvation is a perfect blessing. This day is salvation come to this house. Well, but only as late as yesterday, that man had not even seen Jesus. 
Half an hour ago he was climbing a tree, like a boy might have done, with no wish but just to get a sight of Jesus. And now, is that man saved? Yes, says Christ. This day is salvation come to this house. Oh, but surely you don't talk as positively as that concerning a man who came here tonight unsaved and who's just trusted in Jesus. You must mean that he has reached a hopeful stage in his experience. And after several years, he may perhaps come to be really assured that he's a saved man. No, I mean nothing of the sort. I mean just what the text implies, which is that the moment the Lord Jesus Christ crossed the threshold of the house of Zacchaeus, his sins were forgiven him. His heart was renewed. His spirit was changed, and he was a saved man. But uh, someone asks, is anybody ever saved before he dies? Well, yes, certainly. Were those persons dead of whom Paul wrote, for the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but to us which are saved, it's the power of God. No, they were living men and women. Yet the apostles said that they were saved. And so they were. And at the present moment, here are hundreds of thousands of believers in Jesus upon the face of this earth who are as truly saved now as they will be when they stand before the burning throne of God without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. In God's judgment, by virtue of the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, on whom they are resting by faith, they have been delivered from condemnation. They have escaped from the dominion of sin. And in a word, they are saved. <laughs> and so you see, dear friends, that salvation is a perfect blessing. Notice next that it's a much-containing blessing. A man who believes in Christ is saved directly, but he does not fully know how much that word saved means yet. It's like a big box that comes into the house and you begin to open it. And you take out first one thing and then another. There, you say, that's all. Oh no, says somebody who looks more carefully. Here's another packet. Well, then, that's surely all. There's nothing but straw. Now, at the bottom of the box, you put your hand in and you cry, What? Well, there's something more and something more. What a box full it is. Yes, and what a box full salvation is. You have no idea what there is in it. Not only the pardon of sin, but justifying righteousness. Not only that, but regeneration. A new heart. A right spirit. Not only that, sanctification. Adoption, acceptance, power in prayer, preservation, perseverance, victory. Yea, we are to be more than conquerors through him that hath loved us and all that is in the box. Aye, and more too. For we are to have a safe and happy departure out of this world and an abundant entrance into the everlasting kingdom of God our Father. All that is in the box, and all that had come into the house of Zacchaeus, when the Lord Jesus Christ came there, you have all that if you have Christ. For it is all in Christ. You know how he said, All things are delivered unto me of my Father. And Paul wrote to the Corinthians, All things are yours, whether Paul, or Apollos, or Cephas, or the world, or life, or death, 
or things present or things to come, all are yours. And you are Christ's and Christ is God's. You'll never get to the bottom of that box which bears the name salvation. However great your needs may be, you may keep on taking out of it all that you require and still there should be more left. Or to change the figure, salvation is a springing well from which the more you draw, the more is remaining. For drawn wells are always the sweetest and usually the fullest. So bring your buckets to this great well of gospel grace that is springing up at your very feet. Thus you see that salvation is an all-containing blessing. Next, it is a spreading blessing. For salvation had come to the house of Zacchaeus, not to himself only, but to his wife, his children, and his servants. I hope it means. Uh, I never like to have the servants left out, though I'm afraid that they often are. You servants who live in Christian families, mind that you do not get left out. For remember that Noah, although he was a good man, did not get a servant into the ark with him and his family. Recollect Lot also. He was a good man of a very poor sort. He only got his two children out of Sodom, and no servant went with them. It's a sad thing when you live and labor in the midst of Christian people, yet you yourselves remain unsaved. I hope and believe that in the case of Zacchaeus, all in his house were saved when salvation came there. But one more, once more, the, the salvation which had come to the house of Zacchaeus was an abiding blessing. For I never read that it went away again. If salvation comes to a man's house, it comes to stay there. As Christ said to Zacchaeus, I must abide at thy house. I can never believe in a man being saved for a time and then falling from grace and having to begin all over again. If he does not hold on his, on his way to the inn, it, it's clear that he never was really saved at all. As I have often told you, I can understand a man being regenerated, that is, being born again. But then some people tell us it's possible for him afterwards to fall away from grace. But what's to become of him the next time? Well, I suppose that he must be re-regenerated. Born again and again. But I never read in Scripture anything of the kind. A man may be born again once, but he cannot be born again and again and again and again and again and again. That cannot be. When the work of regeneration is done once, it's done forever. The work of man comes to an end, but the work of God fails not. That which is born of God is as immortal as God himself, the new life that comes into the converted man from God, cannot die. How often do we ring in our ears, in the ears of our friends, those glorious words of our Lord, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them to me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. Happy is the man to whose house salvation comes, for it comes to stay world without end. Now, that must suffice for the first head this day. What? Now, secondly, we're to think of another aspect of the subject, that is, 
this day, why? Why had salvation come to the house of Zacchaeus that day? I answer, because that day Zacchaeus was called by effectual grace. And whenever effectual grace comes to anyone, it brings salvation. Wherefore, brethren, as Peter says, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For these are the things that accompany salvation. If you are sure that you are called of God, you may be quite certain that you are saved. For this day, the day in which a man is effectually called by grace, this day does salvation come to his house. Look, dear friends, God chose his people in his everlasting purpose. But salvation did not come to their houses that day. They knew nothing of it at that time, for they were not then born. Christ redeemed his people when he died on the cross, but salvation did not come to their houses that day, for the most of them were not then in existence. But in the fullness of time, the gospel was preached to them, and they heard it. Yet in all cases, salvation did not come to their houses that day. For though they heard it, they refused it. But the moment that effectual grace says to anyone, Today I must abide at thy house, that grace at once gains admission, and salvation comes there, and then to that, to that man's house. You remember how the Apostle Paul wrote to the Romans, whom he called, them he also justified, whom he justified, them he also glorified. These great blessings are joined together like the links of a chain. You cannot pull them asunder. There's the calling that fits into the justification, and the chain is so made that the two links never can be separated. And then justification fits into glorification in such a way you cannot possibly part them. It's no use for anyone to try to separate them. The devil may pull and hammer as much as ever he likes, but all his efforts will be in vain. I've sometimes likened that passage in Romans to a vast suspension bridge between earth and heaven. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. Whom he called, them he also justified. Whom he justified, them he also glorified. If you get your foot firmly resting on that great plank of effectual calling, you may be quite sure that you'll be able to cross all the rest of the bridge and will most certainly reach the other side and be forever with the Lord. But how do we know that Zacchaeus was really called? Well, I answer in such a way that you may know whether you also are called or not. The call of Zacchaeus was an effectual call, first because it was a personal call. He was up in a sycamore tree, and he heard Christ call Zacchaeus. Why, he said to himself, that's my name. He's calling me. Zacchaeus, make haste and come down. Well, then he can see that I'm up here. His description exactly fits my case. Now, when you come and hear me preach the gospel, I try to put the truth before you in a clear and very pointed manner. Some people say it's wrong to be personal in preaching, but I always try to be as personal as ever I can. 
Yet I know that many of my hearers pass on to their neighbors and friends what I say to them. Oh, that just fits Mr. So-and-so, says somebody. Oh, no, my dear sir, it's meant for you. But you won't take it home to yourself. But when the Lord Jesus Christ himself calls, then that man says, Dear me, I don't believe the preacher can see me right away here, yet he's speaking straight at me. I'm sure he is. How singular. He just mentions something that, that cannot have occurred to anybody but me. He has exactly described my case. Those are the times when God is about to bless the soul. When the man feels himself picked out from the rest of the congregation and the gospel sharpshooter is just covering him with his rifle of grace. I pray that the blessed bullet of the gospel may find its billet in the very center of your heart and bring you down at the feet of Jesus as a weeping penitent. Zacchaeus! The Lord knew that was the name of the man up in the sycamore. He also knows your name and your character. And when he calls you by his effectual grace, he'll hold your photograph up and he'll make you say, Yes, that's my portrait. There's nothing else exactly like that. Next it was a royal call. Jesus said to Zacchaeus, Today I must abide at thy house. One of our Proverbs says, Must is for the king. When the king speaks, he must be obeyed. We who are his ministers try to be very pressing and urgent, but when the master himself utters the call, where? The word of that king is, is there in power. I hope he's saying to someone here, Today I must abide in thy heart. I must. Now you've come to the point when you will also have to say, I must. There must be no turning back now, dear friend. You must not say to Christ, go thy way for this time. No, but you must say, this time present is the time when I also will say must, as Christ says it to me. That's an effectual call when it comes as a royal mandate, a warrant from the king. I must. And then next, it was a call which produced immediate obedience. The Lord said to Zacchaeus, Make haste and come down. And we read, He made haste and came down. I think I see him coming down that tree a great deal faster than he'd gone up. He'd not moved at such a rate as that for a long time. But he scurried down, for he was told to make haste by one whose command compelled him to obey. When the Lord Jesus Christ calls any of you effectually, you'll not put off your decision till the next morning. You won't say, I'll wait till I can get home and pray. No, you won't even say, I'll wait till the end of the service and then we'll talk with some Christian person. No, your prayer will be, Lord, help me to look to Jesus now. I yield myself up to thee this very instant. I'm in a hurry about it. Lord, I'm making haste to get to thee. Make haste to come and save me. I won't delay a single second longer. I want to be thine alone, thine at once. That's a mark of effectual calling when immediate obedience is given to the call. Another mark in the case of Zacchaeus was that it was joyful obedience. He made haste and came down and received him joyfully. Oh, the joy of the heart that receives Christ when Christ himself does really come into the soul. The moment I believed in Christ, I wanted to shout hallelujah 
If I had done so, I think I might have been forgiven. <laughs> the moment one believes in Christ and knows that his sin is all gone, what extravagance would be extravagant under such circumstances? Isn't the man justified in being joyful when at length his iniquity is blotted out and his transgression is covered? It's a mark of effectual calling when he receives Christ joyfully. In the case of Zacchaeus, observe that his obedience was complete. For Christ said, Today I must abide at thy house. And, and he made haste and came down and received him joyfully at his house. For the people murmured because Christ had gone to be his guest. Now, dear friends, will you also receive Christ? That's the point. Are you willing to let him come to you and be your salvation? Are you eager that he should come? Do you beg him to come? Depend upon it. He will come to you when you are ready to receive him. But mind you, do not trust for salvation to anything else or anyone else but Christ. Be satisfied with nothing but the ever-living Savior to be your Savior from first to last. There was yet one more mark of the effectual calling of Zacchaeus. That was that he received Christ in a spiritual sense where he did not only take him into his house, but he took him into his heart. I know that he did so because he began at once to purge his heart by driving out covetousness. That was a splendid way of getting rid of it when he said, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. Then he began to drive out his former grasping habit, for he said, And if, I, if I've taken... Anything from any man by false accusation, I restore him fourfold. That was clear evidence that he meant to receive Christ in all his holy, gracious teaching. Not merely as a man and a stranger, but spiritually as his master, his ruler, his teacher, his guide. In a word, as his savior. And now lastly, this day, why not? Now I change the day altogether, for I mean this very day when I'm speaking to you, this 1st of October in the present year of grace, 1882, this day. This day, why not? Why should we not this day give ourselves to Christ? I've tried to think of any reason why a man should not give himself up to the Lord Jesus Christ this day, and I can't find one then why should he give himself to Christ this day, on this particular day? I think I know several reasons why he should do so. First, it's late enough. Surely you don't want to wait any longer. How old did you say you are, friend? Seventy-six? Eighty-six? What? As old as that and, and not yet saved? You don't need one like me, so much younger, to urge you to speedy decision. Or did you say that you are not more than my own age? You're, you're not even 50. Well, I, I find it is quite late enough for me. There are certain influences and sensations creeping over me which make me realize that I'm somewhat different from what I used to be. I expect it's the same with you. I think it's getting rather late in life for you to be still undecided. Uh, perhaps some younger person says, but I'm only one and twenty. Well, that's late enough to be without Christ. It's a thousand pities that the devil should have had even one in twenty years of your life. I was converted to the Lord Jesus Christ when I was fifteen, but I wish it could have been fifteen years before. 
Oh, that I had known and loved him as soon as I knew anything, and had lisped his name with the first words I ever uttered. I think every Christian will say the same. Whatever our age is, the time past may well suffice to have wrought the will of the flesh. Don't you think so, my friend? Have you not had quite enough of sin? What profit have you ever received from sin? It's surely quite late enough for you to receive Christ as your Savior. And further, it's late enough in the year. It seems to me, when the leaves are falling all around you, as as if they all said to you, we all do fade as a leaf. Isn't it fully time to seek the Lord? I know of no season that seems more suited for pensive thought than just now, when the year seems to be weeping itself into its tomb and burying itself amid falling leaves. Now is the time to yield yourself to the Lord. There cannot be a better period than just now, ere yet the year is fully gone. The mercy is, dear friend, that though it is quite late enough, it's not too late for anybody here. There's yet time for you to seek the Lord. It's a pity to have put the Lord off until you yourself have got into the sear and yellow leaf, but but yet there is time to turn unto him. What? Have you reached the eleventh hour of life? Oh, it's late. It's very late, but still it's not too late. It's not yet too late even if you are to die this week. And there are some out of this great company who will, I suppose, pass into the unseen world this week. Dear friend, I know not who you are, but you who stand nearest to your eternal destiny, it is not yet too late even for you. I pray you, clutch at once at the great mercy now offered to you. God help you to do so. Every week I have to hear of some out of our number who have passed away. There have been some this last week and some whom I certainly thought we might have had with us a very long time. They were apparently in good health. Yet now they're to be buried at the beginning of the week, for they have gone from us quite suddenly. And why may not some of you be the next to be taken? Do not postpone your decision any longer. I would that we could say tonight, this day, October 1st, some soul did receive salvation. Let the recording angel mark it down. The harvest is not quite over, though I thought it was. We down south have almost forgotten it. But there is a farming friend up with us today who said to me, we have not finished our harvest, for we don't have the beans in yet. And so you see, the harvest is not quite over, but I don't want you to have to say the harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. I'd like to get some of you to come in with the beans, just with the last crop. Oh, that you might be brought to Christ just at this end of the harvest. The Master's willing that you should come to Him even now, so don't delay. Today, if you will hear His voice, harden not your hearts. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Remember also that today is gospel time. Still is Christ preached to you. Still is the door of mercy set open before you. Still is the cry, come, uttered by the Spirit and the Bride. The Lamb's wife echoes it, come. Still the water of life is freely flowing for all who are willing to receive it. 
Recollect too, this is praying time. You're still on praying ground. A prayer will find God yet. A traveler tells us that when he was in the east, he saw the procession of a sultan passing through a certain city. The monarch was there, all bedizened with gems and every kind of barbaric ornament, and surrounded by his guards. There was a poor wretch who wanted to get a petition to the sultan, and he did not know how to manage it. He had no money with which to bribe the officials. He couldn't force his way through the armed men. So in his desperation, he got near enough to throw the petition down at the monarch's feet. But one of the soldiers struck a spear through it, and he held it aloft. And that was the end of it, for the sultan took no notice of the incident. He was much too great a man to attend to the petition of this poor subject. Well, it's never so with God. Cast your petition, now you may, at his dear feet. He'll answer it. He'll send you on your way rejoicing. You're not only on praying ground, for tonight it seems to me to be a very auspicious season. It is communion time. God's people are presently coming together around his table to remember Christ. Will you not also remember him? We are about to receive Christ spiritually through the emblems of bread and wine, which will let him forth to us. Why should you not also receive Christ in a spiritual fashion, by faith, as your Savior? Oh, that you would press through the throng and bow at the feet of Jesus Christ our Lord. If you do so, he'll accept you. And again it shall be said, this day is salvation. Come to this house. God grant it for Christ's sake. Amen. There follows an exposition by Charles Spurgeon on Luke 18, of the passage we were just talking about, just a little bit of a verse-by-verse commentary, and we'll read that now. Exposition by Charles Spurgeon, Luke 18, 35-43, if you want to follow along, and Luke 19, 1-10. It came to pass that he was, as he was come nigh to Jericho, a certain blind man sat by the wayside begging. And hearing the multitude pass by, he asked what it meant. And they told him that Jesus of Nazareth passes by. And he cried, saying, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. And they which went before rebuked him, that he should hold his peace. Hush, they cried. How can you disturb the blessed master's discourse? Be quiet. But he cried so much the more, Thou son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stood. Well, prayer held him fast. Here's a stationary Savior, held in his place by the cries of a blind man. Oh, the power of prayer. It stays the onward march of the Son of God. Jesus stood. And he commanded him to be brought unto him. And when he was come near, he asked him, saying, What wilt thou that I should do to thee? And he said, Lord, that I may receive my sight. It's a great thing to know what you really do want. There are some persons who are so blind, they don't know that they are blind. And because they say, we see, therefore is their blindness the more intense. I fear that there is many a person who professes to pray, yet who, if Christ should come into the room and say, What wilt thou that I do unto thee? would not even know how to answer the question. This man did. And he said very briefly, very clearly, but in a very full way, Lord, 
that I may receive my sight. And Jesus said to him, Receive thy sight. Often the blessing from Christ's lip is the echo of the prayer which fell from ours. The blind man said, Lord, that I may receive it, my sight. And the echo answered, Receive thy sight. Thy faith has saved thee, and immediately he received his sight. See how the prayer, the word of God, the immediate effect of it, all tally, that I might receive my sight, receive thy sight. He received his sight and followed him. Christ likes not blind followers, and he followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. They seemed to be greatly impressed, but we shall see that some of them soon spoke in another fashion, and Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. There was to be a miracle at each end of Jericho. Long before it had been cursed, now it was to have a double blessing. Behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, which was the chief among the publicans, that is, tax gatherers, and he was rich, as they often were, for they farmed the taxes and then squeezed every farthing they could out of the people. And he sought to see Jesus, who he was, and he could not for the press because he was little of stature. That was a fortunate thing for him. We need not all wish to be so tall as some people are. Perhaps Zacchaeus would not have gone up the sycamore tree if he had been a tall man. But the whole story turns upon something which many regard as a disadvantage. He was little of stature. And he ran before and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said to him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must abide at thy house. And he made haste. He came down and received him joyfully. When they saw it, they all murmured. Now there's a great contrast between this verse and the last one in the previous chapter. All the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Here it is, when they saw it, they murmured. Yet very likely, many of them were the same people. Certainly they were the same sort of people that we hear of every now and then. When they saw it, they all murmured. There are far too many of that kind about still. We don't quite know who they are, nor where they are. They have a sort of nondescript, mysterious existence that finds expression in the words they they say so-and-so and so-and-so. They've been saying something about the minister, something about the Sunday school, something about the Bible class, something about your work, something about mine. You see, there always were such people about it, and they always would talk. And their talk often took the form of complaining. When they saw it, they all murmured, saying, He's going to be guest with a man that is a sinner. Well, if he had not done so, he could not have gone anywhere, for all men are sinners. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But this man was a sinner above others, for he had sold himself to the hated Roman power and was authorized to collect the conqueror's taxes from his own people. And so, of course, in the estimation of the Jews, he was the worst kind of sinner that could be found anywhere. And Zacchaeus stood, and he didn't talk at all like a sinner. He said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. Some of those saints, as they reckoned themselves, had not done anything like as much as that. The half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I've taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore him fourfold. 
which restitution was an act of justice. And when charity and justice go hand in hand, what more can we expect of him? And Jesus said to him, This day is salvation come to this house, forasmuch as he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. All that day he had both sought and saved one of the lost ones. For he had found Zacchaeus up in a sycamore tree, and he brought salvation to the tax gatherer's house. May he do the same for many who are here. Stillwater's Revival Books is now located at PuritanDownloads.com. It's your worldwide online Reformation home for the very best in free and discounted classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, MP3s, and videos. For much more information on the Puritans and Reformers, including the best free and discounted classic and contemporary books, MP3s, digital downloads, and videos, please visit Stillwater's Revival Books at PuritanDownloads.com. Stillwater's Revival Books also publishes the Puritan Hard Drive, the most powerful and practical Christian study tool ever produced. All thanks and glory be to the mercy, grace, and love of the Lord Jesus Christ for this remarkable and wonderful new Christian study tool. The Puritan Hard Drive contains over 12,500 of the best Reformation books, MP3s, and videos ever gathered onto one portable Christian study tool. An extraordinary collection of Puritan, Protestant, Calvinistic, Presbyterian, Covenanter, and Reformed Baptist resources. It's fully upgradable and it's small enough to fit in your pocket. The Puritan hard drive combines an embedded database containing many millions of records with the most amazing and extraordinary custom Christian search and research software ever created. The Puritan hard drive has been produced to assist you in the fascinating and exhilarating spiritual, intellectual, familial, ecclesiastical, and societal adventure that is living the Christian life. It has been specifically designed so that you might more faithfully know, serve, and love the Lord Jesus Christ, as well as to help you to do all you can to bring glory to His great name. If you want to love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, then the Puritan hard drive is for you. Visit PuritanDownloads.com today for much more information on the Puritan hard drive and to take advantage of all the free and discounted Reformation and Puritan books MP3s and videos that we offer at Stillwater's Revival Books.